Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Now, uh, looking at these two Supreme Court rulings, what I want to do uh, with you here for a second is uh, share with you uh, some of the uh, some some of the the details of these cases and the decisions and what it might mean. First off, uh, let's go to the arguments themselves. Here, you'll hear from uh, petitioner's attorney, Eric Rasbach, who argues that separation is about, well, actually, let me back up here. The the case we're discussing now has to do with uh, religions and their ability, specifically religious schools, and how this ruling ultimately came down that states that religious schools uh, can, in fact, engage in a certain amount of uh, employment discrimination. Now, I know that that word discrimination is a negative one. It carries with it many negative connotations. But think of it this way. If you are a religion and you have a school and it is your religious mission, your religious conviction that the teachings of that school be in the furtherance of your religion, how could a teacher at that school not be considered a minister? Further, how could an individual teaching at that school who doesn't believe or abide by the teachings of that faith continue on as a faithful minister? Well, the, the court here has decided that if that in fact is the case, that a religious university or school uh, may dismiss uh, said teacher. So here uh, we have petitioner attorney Eric Rasbach who is discussing the separation and how it is about who controls who teaches uh, at, uh, at, a, at a faith uh, religious school. If separation of church and state means anything at all, it must mean that government cannot interfere with the church's decisions about who is authorized to teach its religion. In this country, it is emphatically not the province of judges juries, or government officials to decide who ought to teach Catholic fifth graders that Jesus is the Son of God, or who ought to teach Jewish preschoolers what it means to say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And at bottom, that is what these cases are about. Who controls who teaches the faith to school children? Raspach continues arguing the respondents want courts to apply a job title test. Respondents would have the court ignore all that, substituting a formalistic standard that relies first and foremost on the employee's title to determine whether the ministerial exception applies. That would wrongly elevate form over function and force judges to decide what titles sound religious enough to qualify. And it would hopelessly entangle church and state. Unsurprisingly, no court has ever adopted respondent's title test. And finally, and this again is coming from the deliberations before the Supreme Court when uh, the petitioners and the respondents were arguing their respective cases. Uh, This gentleman from whom you're hearing now is the attorney for the petitioners, Eric Rasbach. And he uh, summarized arguing that the role of these teachers uh, and the role they play uh, is important to the teaching of the faith. Churches must choose those who, quote, teach their faith. Indeed, that is one of the most important religious functions for any religious community, passing the faith on to the next generation. And since the teachers here were the church's primary agents for teaching the Catholic faith to fifth graders, 
teaching them for hours a week, much more than parish priests, they fall within the ministerial exception immunity. So that is a, a big sigh of relief for a number of religious institutions, faiths, churches that operate schools or universities, that they uh, are able to uh, determine who teaches in their classrooms, and that, that, that those determinations can, in fact, be based on the faith of the individual. Does that make sense? It's pretty cut and dry to me. Now, there had been uh, certain challenges to that which have arisen over the years. Uh, this, though, uh, luckily will seemingly put it to rest. I do anticipate there will be more challenges, and there are always ways uh, to you know, uh, appeal things. Uh, not this specific decision, but uh, keep your eyes open. There are always challenges to, to this type of thing. Employment discrimination is a big deal, uh, a very big deal. And so uh, the bar is very high to come up with an argument for why it is uh, acceptable. <clears throat> anyway, so that is one of two, one of two cases uh, whose decisions were handed down by the Supreme Court today. The second comes uh, as the Supreme Court rules that the Trump administration did in fact act within its authority when it expanded exemptions to the Affordable Care Act's requirements for employers to provide insurance that includes contraception. This stems, of course, as you know, from the, the case uh, involving the Little Sisters of the Poor. That's the Catholic group that's been at the center of this national debate over the mandate. Here uh, we have the Solicitor, Solicitor General, uh, Noel Francisco, when uh, this argument was introduced to the Supreme Court when deliberations commenced. In 2011, the government required employers to provide insurance coverage for all FDA-approved contraception including many religious employers who objected to the coverage, sparking years of litigation. In 2017, in the best traditions of this country's commitment to religious liberty, the government sought to resolve the issue by promulgating new rules exempting those employers who objected to the mandate. Those exemptions are lawful. The solicitor here goes on to describe why, in fact, the 2017 Trump exemptions, in fact, were legal. So it authorizes the agencies to require most employers to provide contraceptive coverage while exempting the small number of employers who have sincere conscientious objections. But it doesn't create an all-or-nothing choice, require coverage for everyone or no one. Otherwise, the long-standing church exemption, the effective exemption for self-insured church plans, and indeed respondents' understanding of the accommodation itself would also violate the statute since the employer's group health plans don't provide the mandated coverage. Thus far, I have given you my Reader's Digest summary of these cases and their decisions. I have shared with you here some of the arguments that were presented during deliberations, some of the arguments that led to the ultimate decision by the Supreme Court on these two cases which we have received today.